Today's episode is brought to you by Azoth. Azoth is a Boston-based, woman-owned supplement company that makes premium quality supplements for women with the mission to help people reach their highest potential without the harmful side effects of over-the-counter medications. Their newest supplement, Boss Flow, is a PMS gummy that helps every woman be a boss, no matter what day of the month it is. These little gummies are packed full with a delicious blast of strawberry flavor and powerful vitamins and nutrients to help soothe menstrual cramps, stop bloating, and balance out hormonal mood swings and acne symptoms that are often caused by periods. Trust me, I've heard these really work. Boss Flow is exclusively offering our listeners 10% off your next purchase by going to Amazon.com, searching for Boss Flow gummies, and using the code BOSSFLOW. That's the code BOSSFLOW just to get 10% off your purchase at checkout. You need to have an Amazon or Amazon Prime account to get these amazing gummies. Order Boss Flow supplements for the boss woman on the go. Welcome back to Psych Your Crime. I'm your host, Nicole Mann. And once again, I just want to thank you so much for joining me. I say this every single time, I know, but I never ever thought I would be doing this for this long. This is three years now. I thought that maybe I would have a handful of episodes, a couple of friends, family members might listen. I never thought the people from around the world, New Zealand, Germany, Ireland, New England, um, Uh, the UK would be listening to me. I just never ever thought I would reach so many people. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you for all the support. Um, Thank you to uh, those uh, people who are responding through various social media. I thoroughly enjoy talking to those of you who reach out to me. And I absolutely appreciate those of you who are showing your support in other ways. We have our first uh, few sales from the merchandise store. Thank you so much. We greatly appreciate it. If you want to get some merch, we have Psych Your Crime uh, merchandise. It's available in t-shirts, tank tops, men's t-shirts, women's t-shirts, sweatshirts, hoodies. It's available in cell phone cases. It's available in art print stickers. It's available in mouse pads. Uh, Got my dad one of those little mouse pads. He really, really appreciated it. Um, We also have other types of merchandise. Um, We, I just put out uh, a design um, um, based on, I have a friend who says my job as a social worker. He says that I'm like the kid from the sixth sense, except instead of dead people, 
I see bullshit. So uh, we have something based on that. And then I did put out another one uh, for all those choosing beggars out there because I know people are thoroughly sick of dealing with choosing beggars. So it's, it's a little response for the choosing beggar in your life. So the link will be down there if you want to stop by the merch store. We also have um, the Patreon. So for $5, you can get early access to um, to podcasts. And then you can also get access to pictures and little known facts that are not going to be part of the podcast. And for $25, you can actually get um, a free uh, t-shirt. And then also um, you'll be able to request that I cover specific crime of your choice, which is something new. So we're going to dive right in. This week we're going to be covering the MOVE bombing in uh, Philadelphia. MOVE, originally the Christian Movement for Life, is a militant black separatist group that advocates for nature, laws, and natural living. They were founded in 1972 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania by John Africa, born Vincent Leapart. The name styled in all capital letters is not an acronym. MOVE lived in a communal setting in West Philadelphia, abiding by philosophies of anarcho-primitivism. The group combined revolutionary ideology, similar to that of the Black Panthers, with work for animal rights. The group's name MOVE, not anachronism, and its founder, John Africa, chose its name to say what they intended it to do, cause people to move, cause people to act. Members intended to be active because they say everything that's alive moves. If it didn't, it would be stagnant and dead. When members greet each other, they say, on the move. When organization that would become MOVE was founded in 1972, John Africa was functionally illiterate. John Africa dictated his thoughts to Donald Glassy, a social worker from the University of Pennsylvania, and created what he called the Guidelines as the basis of his communal group. Africa and his mostly African-American followers wore their hair in locks. We're not going to call them dreadlocks because that comes from a place people were calling them dreadful locks, people, white people. So most people prefer that they be called locks. As popularized by Caribbean Rastafari movement, MOVE advocated a radical form of green politics and a return to hunter-gatherer societies, while stating their opposition to science, medicine, and technology. Members of MOVE identify as deeply religious and advocate for life. They believe that as all living beings are dependent, their lives should be treated as equally important. They advocate for justice that is not always based within institutions. MOVE members believe that for something to be just, it must be just for all living creatures. As John Africa had done, his followers changed their surnames to Africa to show reverence for what they regarded as their mother continent. In a 2018 article about the group, Ed Pilkington of The Guardian described their political views as a strange fusion of black power and flower power. The group that formed in the early 70s melded the revolutionary ideology of the Black Panthers with the nature and animal-loving communalization of the 1960s hippies. You might characterize them as the Black liberationists come eco-warriors. He noted that the group also functioned as an animal rights advocacy organization. Pilkington quoted member Janine Africa, who wrote to him from prison. We demonstrated against puppy mills, zoos, circuses, 
any form of enslavement of animals. We demonstrated against Three Mile Island and industrial pollution. We demonstrated against police brutality, and we did so uncompromisingly. Slavery never ended, it was just disguise. MOVE was a primarily black organization, although white people could join if they wanted to. As an anti-system, anti-technology group, its members ate only a diet of raw fruits, vegetables, nuts, and eggs. They used no technology, medicine, or Western clothing, and disposed their garbage in their backyard and used outhouses instead of conventional toilets. The children of MOVE were not allowed to attend school. They were illiterate and never even had eaten cooked food or watched television. These were the first pure members of MOVE. They were raised to never be exposed to the corrupting influences of social and political institutions. Members protested outside of zoos or pet stores, often leading to arrests. And though the police did not believe MOVE was even potentially violent during the early 70s. John Africa and his followers lived in a commune in a house owned by Glassy in the Powelton Village section of West Philadelphia. As activists, they staged a bullhorn amplified profanity-laced demonstrations against the institutions they opposed, such as zoos and speakers whose views they, they opposed. Move activities were scrutinized by law enforcement authorities, particularly under the administration of Mayor Frank Rizzo, a former police commissioner known for his hard line against activist groups. In 1977, three MOVE members were jailed for inciting a riot, occasioning further tensions, protests, and armed displays from the group. In 1977, according to police accounts, the Philadelphia Police Department obtained a court order for MOVE to vacate the Powelton Village property in response to a series of complaints made by neighbors. MOVE members agreed to vacate and surrender their weapons if the Philadelphia Police Department released members of their group who were being held in the city jail. The residents of the Powelton Village did not have a great opinion of MOVE after they relocated, which lived communally in three townhouses in the neighborhood. The Powelton Village, located near Drexel University and the University of Pennsylvania, was a diverse and tolerant community and a haven for political activists. In 1976, neighbors began complaining about the children playing in the yard without diapers and the unsanitary conditions. Due to Powelton residents' complaints, the police set up 24-hour surveillance on the MOVE townhouses. The next year, MOVE members began to sit out on the porch holding rifles, wearing berets, and using loudspeakers to lecture their neighbors. MOVE already held a reputation as a radical black organization, much like the Black Panthers. Because of MOVE's emergence during the Black Power era, many in Philadelphia believed that the public display of weapons to be the start of the organization becoming militant. Tensions between the city and MOVE began to rise as neighbors in Powelton continued complaining about MOVE's actions and as the police department's surveillance of MOVE began to infuriate them. In the year between 1977 and 1978, Moved left bomb timing devices, though no explosives, in several hotels across the nation, as well as in London. These devices were left with threatening letters stating that Move would strike for real unless Philadelphia stopped its harassment. The organization had begun a feud with then-Mayor Frank Rizzo, who had previously served as Philadelphia's police commissioner and ran for mayor on a law and order platform. 
Moo's residency in Palatin Village came to a head in 1978 after the May 5th agreement between Move and the city disintegrated. The city and Move agreed that the city would end the blockade and within 90 days, Move members would relocate to a residence outside of the city. Move saw the city as at the heart of the issue and they stayed past the 90-day limit. Nearly a year later, on August 8, 1978, the Philadelphia Police Department came to a standoff with members of MOVE who had not left the Palatin Village property. When police attempted to enter the house, a shootout ensued. Philadelphia Police Department officer James J. Ramp was killed by a shot to the back of the neck. Sixteen police officers and firefighters were also injured in the firefight. MOVE representatives claimed that Ramp was facing the house at the time and denied that the group was responsible for his death, insisting that he was killed from fire by a fellow police officer. Prosecutors alleged that MOVE members fired the fatal shot and charged Debbie Sims Africa and eight other MOVE members with collective responsibility for the death. Now, this is very unusual. In the United States, when there is an officer-involved shooting, as we talked about with the case of um, with the case in Colorado, the most that they'll normally do is the person who actually fired the actual weapon, they will get hit with a murder charge and then the other people involved will get hit with like, um, say that they'll, they'll hit them with inciting a riot or because there's a shootout, they'll hit them with weapons charges that will be felony level. And then they'll hit them with, um, at the time in the 80s, I'm not sure if felony murder was around. If it was, they'll hit them with a felony murder charge. They'll hit them with something to charge stack their charges to get them a higher charge, even though they're not responsible and they didn't, they didn't actually, um, fire the shot. In this case, they blatantly are charging all the people who were there with the murder in the, even though they know not all of them could have done it. And it's probably because they don't know who fired the shot, but they want to make sure all of them are held responsible. So that was an insane thing to do, even by 70 standards. Um, Eyewitnesses, however, gave accounts suggesting that the shot may have come from the opposite direction to the basement, raising the possibility that Ramp was accidentally felled by friendly fire. Move members continued to insist they had no workable guns in the home at the time of the siege. Several months earlier, in May 1978, several guns, most of them inoperable, had been handed over to the police. However, prosecutors at the trial of the Move 9 told the jury that at the time of the August siege, there had been functioning firearms in the house. The standoff lasted for an hour before the members began to surrender. The nine members of MOVE charged with third-degree murder for Ramp's death became known as the MOVE 9. Each was sentenced to a maximum of 100 years in prison. They were Chuck, Delbert, Eddie, Janet, Janine, Merle, Michael, Phil, and Debbie Sims Africa. In 1998 and 47, Merle Africa died in prison. Seven of the surviving eight members first became eligible for parole in spring of 2008, but they were denied. Parole hearings for each of these prisoners were to be held yearly from that time. In 2015, at age 59, Phil Africa died in prison. The first of the move nine to be released was Debbie Sims Africa on June 16, 2018. Debbie Sims Africa, who's 22 in sentence, was released on parole and reunited with her son when he was 39. Michael Davis Africa, 
She gave birth to him a month after she was put in prison. He was taken from her a week later. The release of Debbie Sims Africa renewed attention on the members of MOVE and the Black Panthers who remained in prison in the U.S. from that period of the late 60s and 70s, there are still at least 25 people in prison as of June 2018. On October 23rd, 2018, Michael Davis Africa, the husband of Debbie Sims Africa, was released on parole. In May 2019, Janine and Janet Africa were released on parole after 41 years in jail. On June 21st, 2019, Eddie Goodman Africa was released on parole. Delbert Orr Africa was granted parole on December 20th, 2019 and released January 28th, 2020. The last of the move nine either to be paroled or die behind bars with Chuck Sims Africa, who was released on parole on February 7th, 2020, after 41 years of imprisonment. Delbert Orr died of cancer at home on June 16th, 2020. After being forced out of Pelton Village, Move took up residence in a townhouse on Osage Avenue in Cobbs Creek, West Philadelphia. At first, Move and the residents of Osage co coexisted peacefully. In time, however, tensions begin to grow as lifestyle differences emerge and the neighbors begin complaining. Move left their garbage outside, collected animals, and fed them food. They would take the neighbor's pets and remove their flea collars, and they built pigeon coops. Most distressing to the Osage Avenue residents was the move children appeared to be malnourished and rummaging through their trash looking for food. The neighbors were told Wilson Good would help them if they would just wait until after he became mayor. But in late 1983, after the mayoral election, move began to use bullhorns and loudspeakers to harass their neighbors. Move believed Mayor Good had the ability to release the jailed Move 9, and they knew they had began to harass the residents of Osage, a middle-class neighborhood, and the bedrock of Good's political support. The city would have to pay attention to them. After he won the mayoral election, despite Move holding the block hostage to obtain the release of fellow members, Good used a policy of avoidance, appeasement, and non-confrontation towards MOVE, attempting to avoid conflict in any way possible. City operating departments, health, water, human services, streets, were barred by city policy from carrying out their responsibilities at the MOVE row house. City officials believed MOVE would stop its harassment once they realized the city was ignoring them and would rather change their belligerent behavior or leave the city. The city, of non the city policy of non-confrontation and avoidance proved ineffective, and in 1984, the Philadelphia police began to plan a course of action against MOVE. One of the first signs of what was to come was Mayor Good told the police he needed a plan of action against MOVE in the spring of 85. He wanted to explore the possibility of arresting some of the members and obtaining a court order to hold the children. MOVE began fortifying their row house in earnest in the fall of 1984 and the winter of 1985, building a bunker made of railroad ties, logs, and steel plates on the top of the house, and they used similar material to fortify the walls. In April of 1985, they announced with bullhorns their intentions to kill the mayor or any police officer who approached their fortified home. Neighbors claimed that they had seen men with rifles on the roof and in the bunker of the house, and they held a press conference where they threatened to take manners into their own hands. 
On the morning of May 13, 1985, the police attempted to serve warrants for the arrests of the MOVE members. These warrants were for misdemeanor charges and primarily served to get MOVE out of the neighborhood. Mayor Good also required that any officers involved in the 1978 shooting not be involved on the operation on Osage. But despite this, several of those officers were present on the assault force. At 5.30 in the morning, outside the Move Row House, police used bullhorns to announce the names of the members to be arrested for illegal possession of explosives and terroristic threats and gave the members 15 minutes to surrender. Move refused. Police insertion teams then entered the house on either side of the row house. Now you have to understand, they actually cleared the houses on either side and they actually um, went in ahead of time and told the residents that they needed to clear the neighborhood because they were going to try and get the residents out. So they knew ahead of time that this was going to get heated and could become violent. And so they actually did evacuate parts of the neighborhood ahead of time. Um, so they did have that much forethought. So this wasn't a great plan, but they had enough foresight to go ahead and evacuate uh, a large portion of the neighborhood before they attempted this. So police insertion teams entered the houses on either side of the row house. In response, moves shot at police forces from inside the house. Over the next hour and a half, Philadelphia police fired over 10,000 rounds of ammunition on the row house. They used explosive to blow holes in the walls. Now, I need you to, to understand why this is incredible, like, like why this makes no sense is that the gun of choice at the time for law enforcement were AR-15s, which had 20 to 30 round magazines, which meant best case scenario, if they were carrying 30 round magazines, that at a minimum, 333 full magazines were emptied into a home where unarmed women and children were in a residential neighborhood so even though they did empty out some of the neighbors you have to understand the velocity with which that a bullet can travel they really could have killed people like an entire city block over so those bullets carry they have a lot of velocity they travel very far it could have been very easy for them to kill somebody a city block over when they emptied 333 full magazines that's best case Best case, 333 full magazines were emptied into a home that had women and children, unarmed women and children inside, not to mention friendly fire. They could have killed an innocent civilian. By 1040 a.m., the front of the house was completely destroyed, but the fortifications move had installed during the winter had held up, preventing the police from seizing the house. Then it became clear that the tactics were going to fail and had completely failed. Mayor Good, during a televised press conference, announced he was going to take the, the house by any means necessary. After the press conference, the police began to plan another way to force the 11 people in the house out, including the use of explosives. They began to assemble an explosive entry device around 4.30. And around 15 minutes later, Mayor Good approved the use of this entry device. Then, at 5.27 p.m., the police dropped an explosive package from a helicopter onto the bunker of the MOVE house. When the bomb exploded, it did not remove the bunker. Instead, it ignited a gas tank. 
Instead of trying to contain the blaze, the police and commissioners decided to let it burn. During this time, police opened fire on anyone trying to escape the home. Imagine this. The police light your home on fire. They light the roof of your home on fire in order to try. The sole purpose of this was to get you out to surrender. They then light your home on fire to try and smoke you out. And then when the women and children do this, just that, the women and children try and leave the residence to surrender, the police fire on you, trapping you in the home so you will definitely burn to death. So during this time, like I said, they were opening fire on people trying to exit through basement windows. They were women and children. Luckily, one woman and child were able to escape out of a back door, but that's only because the child came out first. They recognized it was one officer. What happened was the child came out first. They recognized that it was a child. One officer risked his life to stand in the line of fire when he recognized that it was a child to stop them from shooting the child. He actually had to physically get up. He had to stop them. He had to block them to say, look, this is a child to keep them from shooting them because they were just shooting at anything and everyone that was coming out of there. So once they, he recognized it and then he and his mother were able to exit safely. It was not until 6.32 p.m. that the fire department decided to turn on its hoses. And it then took until 9.30 for them to make sh take more active steps to contain the fire. The fire burned on until 11.41 p.m., engulfing 61 homes, damaging 110 houses, killing John Africa and 10 other occupants of the move house. Five of them were children. They left 250 men, women, and children homeless. The bombing of the Move Row House should have been a pivotal event in the history of Philadelphia, showing the incompetence of city officials in an explosive finale. Yet after the bombing, Mayor Good and Philadelphia Police Department received an outcry of support. The Los Angeles police chief at the time, Daryl Gates, defended the use of an explosive device, declaring it was a sound tactic. Gates also stated that Mayor Good provided some of the finest leadership he'd ever seen and that he hoped that he ran for national office. This is a huge deal. For those of you who don't know, Daryl Gates was the man who was chief of police at the time of the L.A. riots. During the L.A. riots, when they first broke out, he was at a fundraiser and he refused to leave in order to go down and oversee what was happening. Not only that, he told them not to act. He specifically told them not to do anything. He specifically told them it would play itself out and it would just calm down. So this begs the question, did he take that tact specifically from the move bombing? Did he figure, hey, you know, Mayor Good got over it. They, they, they heralded him as a hero. I'll just let, you know, I'll just let the LA riots, I'll let them burn themselves down. I'll let them destroy their own neighborhood because that was specifically what he thought. He thought, I'll just leave it alone. They'll burn their own neighborhoods down. And then, you know, once it, the fire dies down, once, you know, their own neighborhoods go up in smoke, then they'll be the villains. But it spread beyond just certain parts of South Central. It wasn't just black communities. It wasn't just Latino communities that were falling prey. And then that's when he started to, 
you know, come under fire, you know, and police were going down and they had actually barricaded places out. You couldn't go in. And there are police officers who were interviewed and they're saying, I saw a man getting assaulted on television. And so I jumped in my car and I came down. And when I tried to get in to go help people, I was told I wasn't allowed. I was told the commissioner said, we're not going in there. We're not doing anything. And a handful of officers luckily chose to risk their career, go in there and help people. And when asked, one of them blatantly said, I took an oath to protect and serve. Standing around behind a blockade, watching people being beaten, watching stores being set on fire is not, that's not what my oath is. And so a handful of people, just like in the move bombing, a handful of people risked their careers to actually protect people. So like I said, that begs the question, did he choose to stand by and do nothing? Did he actually put up barricades and stop his officers from going in and helping the people of South Central because he admired the way things were handled in the move bombing? Was that where he took his cues from? I don't know, but it sure kind of sounds like it based on the fanboying he's doing over this. Today's um, episode is brought to you by Azoth. Azoth is a Boston-based, woman-owned supplement company that makes premium quality supplements for women with the mission to help people reach their highest potential without the harmful side effects of over-the-counter medications. Their newest supplement, Boss Flow, is a PMS gummy that helps every woman be a boss, no matter what day of the month it is. These little gummies are packed full with a delicious blast of strawberry flavor and powerful vitamins and nutrients to help soothe menstrual cramps, stop bloating, and balance out hormonal mood swings and acne symptoms that are often caused by periods. Trust me, I've heard these really work. Boss Flow is exclusively offering our listeners 10% off your next purchase by going to Amazon.com, searching for Boss Flow gummies, and using the code BOSSFLOW. That's the code BOSSFLOW just to get 10% off your purchase at checkout. You need to have an Amazon or Amazon Prime account to get these amazing gummies. Order Boss Flow supplements for the boss woman on the go. Michael Nutter, then an assistant to a, to a city councilman, said, Move is a group of people whose philosophy is based on conflict and confrontation. Roy Innes, who was a chairman of the Congress of Racial Equity, called Mayor Good's handling of the crisis heroic. How can the Congress of Racial Equity even say that? They killed five children. Tom Cremens, the former director of Accuracy Systems, Inc., which sells ammunition to police departments, said the police exercised remarkable restraint. How is it remarkable restraint to kill five children? Not using the device earlier. However, bomb squads of many cities were reluctant to comment, not wishing to criticize fellow officers. Despite those speaking in favor of the mayor and the police department, not all law enforcement officers were complimentary of Philadelphia's handling of the move crisis. The director of the American Federation of Police, Gerald Arnberg, believed they broke every single rule in the book. When it came to their handling of the move incident in the bombing, James Fife, a police lieutenant in New York City, described it by saying they burned down the village to save the village. Before continuing, adding that the actions taken by the Philadelphia Police Department were absolutely unheard of. According to Fife and Arnberg, many police departments have small armored tanks that can be used to batter doors down without endangering the lives of officers. And Arnberg stated the Philadelphia Police Department just weren't using all the equipment available to any modern police department. 
The move bombing captured the attention of the world, as many law enforcement agencies weighed in on the actions of the Philadelphia police. So too did the media, both national and international. The media took a largely critical view of MOVE and Mayor Good. Many newspapers around the world were unsympathetic to the siege of the MOVE row house and called Philadelphia a war zone. Front pages of many newspapers showed pictures of smoldering row houses in West Philadelphia. The Washington Post referred to the picture as resembling a war-torn Beirut, and the New York Daily News called the bombing a terrible, unnecessarily costly blunder. The move bombing attracted national attention, with newspaper international attention, with newspapers in France paying considerable attention to the move incident. Francois, an aerial photo of the devastation and liberation, a French tabloid called the incident one of the most unbelievable urban guerrilla operations that America has ever known. And in Moscow, a newscaster reported six dead, 60 houses destroyed, hundreds homeless. Such is the sinister result of bloody slaughter, which was launched by the police. You know you have done messed up when the Russians are criticizing your police department's handling of things. Okay, that's some beyond pot kettle black business. They also noted that it was an astonishing example of overkill. Okay, when Russia is saying overkill, you messed up. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution was also critical, calling it reckless and including comments from people such as Burton Kane, the president of the Philadelphia chapter of the American Civil Liberties Union, who called the bombing totally unjustified. And New York Mayor Edward Koch, who stated that if he had a police commissioner so stupid as to allow a bomb to be thrown into a house, he would remove him. The Dallas Morning News focused on the residents of the 6200 block of Osage. One resident, Kevin Young, called the bombing unjustified and said, Osage is not a battle zone. Harry Smeck, another resident, said he was totally disgusted with the city and how it had handled this crisis. These harsh comments about the administration and its actions were widespread after the May 13, 1985, and the actions of its day. 11, and the actions of his, despite all these critical reports, some newspapers were more supportive of Philadelphia and the mayor. The New York Times referred to MOVE as a radical group and focused more on the complaints from the neighbors against them. And they framed the incident as a city reacting against behavior that was well outside the norm for a working class African-American neighborhood. In the Times article, D. Peoples, the owner of a store blocks away from the MOVE house said, all you hear is aggression. You sleep with it. You wake up to it. You live with it. About living near MOVE. The San Francisco Chronicle wrote about MOVE's strange philosophy and how it was, in theory, a philosophy of anti-materialism, pacifism, and concern for the environment. In practice, its history was replete with violence, obscenity, and filth. The Chronicle stated that Donald Glassy testified John Africa had planned an armed confrontation with the police and had moved members make bombs and buy firearms. The Lexington Herald leader, like the Times, described MOVE as a radical organization and framed the siege as MOVE refusing to leave the house under an eviction order from the police. The Herald article also discussed the neighbors' complaints of assaults, robberies, and a stench coming from the home. The Philadelphia administration's actions during the crisis were highly criticized and opinion on them was highly divided among news sources in the city and the globe. 
but was much different among the Philadelphia public. Two days before the bombing, Move sent a letter threatening to set fire to their row house in the neighborhood should the police attack. The letter began, if Move goes down, not only would everyone on the block go down, the knee joints of America will break and the body of America will soon fall. Then the letter threatened, before we let you motherfuckers make an example out of us, we'll burn the motherfucker house down and burn you all up with us. The city administration began using the letter as an attempt to paint move as the group that began the fire that burnt down 61 houses and killed 11 people. The police commissioner, Gregor Sambor, stated it was his personal opinion that move started or assisted the fire. Will you? Wow. Wow. You dropped a bond on their house and you really expect the people to believe that they lit their own home on fire and killed their own children. That's a nice try, but no. Commissioner Sambor went on to say he was convinced that move people saturated the roofs. Yes, yes, they soaked their roof in gasoline because they were able to predict the future and see you were going to drop a bomb on them. Yeah, I, I, that totally makes all the sense. All of it. Yes, you have all the sense. All of it. Mayor Good said the letter showed Move was a group that was bent on absolute destruction, a group that was in fact a guerrilla group inside an urban area. The mayor also stated that the release of the letter was not meant as evidence. Yes, it was. You're trying to chain a, a, a jury pool in case they try and put you in jail. That move started the fire. It was not evidence that move started the fire. But yet, somebody's running around saying they started the fire. Okay. In lockstep with the theory of move burning down the street, the city began to discuss how the entry device was used was safe and would never have caused a fire. The explosive device used in the bombing was known as a Tovex TR2, manufactured by DuPont, and was described the, T the Tovex TR2 as one of the safest explosives on the market. He just used the word safest and explosives in the same sentence. Can we stop? Please, please stop with your delusions. Before the decision to use Tovex as an explosive device on move, the Philadelphia Police Department secretly tested multiple devices on lumber structures. However, Tovex TR2 was not meant for above ground buildings, but was instead developed for underground and use in mining. The media began to use the DuPont company's label of Tovex as an extremely safe explosive to push the idea that the fire was not their fault. Mayor Good took issue with the word bomb. Wow, you kill five kids and you take issue with the word bomb. Really? That's where you draw the line? With the word bomb? Not with the word murderer? Not with the fact that you killed 11 people, including five children? Not with the fact that you left 250 people homeless and you burnt down 61 houses. But what you do take issue with is the word bomb. Okay, good to know. Priorities, you know, priorities. Good to know what yours are. So, shortly after the bombing and amid calls for an official investigation into the administration's actions, Mayor Good announced his intentions to create a special investigation into the event. A special commission which had no members of the Good administration would examine the incident. I bet they're all white too. William J. Green, Mayor Good's predecessor, said that MOVE Special Commission has serious tough questions to ask the administration about how it conducted itself, 
And there are many, many unanswered questions and in some cases contradictions that cannot and should not and must not be swept under the rug. The former mayor also asked the city should release the police intelligent files on move so everyone in Philadelphia would know what the premise of these decisions were. Yeah, you were mad that black people had guns. Yes, they were jerks. Yes, they were being disruptive. But they were using bullhorns to piss off their neighbors. I'm pretty sure that that even on fear thy neighbor, nobody has ever dropped a bomb on their neighbor for screaming at them with a bullhorn. That is excessive. The former mayor also said the city should um, make sure that the ultimate responsibility of the widespread property destruction remains squarely on the members of the terrorist organization known as MOVE. But public opinion in Philadelphia seemed to be supporting this idea. In a poll conducted by Techner Associates of Philadelphia, 71% of respondents believed the mayor did a good job or an excellent job responding to MOVE. Even with the support of the Philadelphia public, the commission was necessary for answering the questions on the city's actions during the incident. The MOVE Special Commission hired several people to conduct their investigation. James R. Fellon, one of FBI's, mo FBI's explosive and counter-espionage experts before he left the borough two years earlier, Charles King, an expert in cause and spread of fires, were brought in to investigate the explosives used in the bombing. The original report on the explosive device indicated the only explosive used was Tobacco's TR2. However, three months after the incident, Officer William C. Klein testified he also used C4 in the device that he put together. The commission also hired six other investigators to work beneath Neil P. Shanahan. These investigators came from Connecticut, Chicago, Virginia, Maryland, as well as Philly. William H. Brown III, the chairman of the commission, said the search for the highest quality professional investigators was long and wide-ranging. Brown added these investigators brought the skills and expertise essential for the investigation to fulfill its mandate. The investigators specialized in anti-terrorist programs, major violent crime, and homicide. As the inquiry continued, it became very critical of how the city managed the incident. As the MOVE Commission's hearing occurred, these testimonies began to paint Mayor Good in a very unflattering light. In his testimony, the mayor portrayed himself as misinformed and misled by his subordinates. He was as much of a victim as a leader. He depicted himself as a leader who conform, conformed his decision, confirmed the decisions that other people made. This was odd as Good's managing style as both city manager and mayor was very detail oriented. An assistant to the district attorney, Bernard L. Siegel, testified before the grand jury that he had heard the mayor say to the police commissioner, you are th the professional and need not keep me advised of all the details. When district attorney Ed Rendell was asked about this statement, he thought it was somewhat unusual for Wilson Good before adding the mayor's management style has always been to get involved in the details. The hearing revealed the mayor's attempt to distance himself from move and the incident as it was occurring by purposefully asking to not be given the details. This opened Good up to considerable criticism, the most significant from former mayor William Green, who said Good was pushing the theory of reverse Nuremberg. He could not be responsible for the incident because he had only accepted recommendations. 
Charles Bowser, a member of the commission, criticized Good in a less direct way, stating, The only person who had the foggiest notion of what was going on to happen when the bomb dropped was the police lieutenant. While these hearings demonstrated there was a major issue between Move and other residents of the 6200 block of Osage, they also showed there had been poor communication and inaccurate or incompetent intelligence on the organization and incompetent leadership. When the MOVE Special Commission reached a decision on the actions of the administration and the police, the report stated Mayor Good and his administration displayed reckless disregard for life and property in their actions. The report stated dropping a bomb on an occupied row house was unconscionable and should have been rejected out of hand. The plan to drop a bomb was reckless, ill-conceived, and hastily approved. Commissioner Gregor Sambor and Reg Managing Director Leo A. Brooks were declared grossly negligent for not calling off the siege. The report also called the mayor grossly negligent in his actions and said he clearly risked the lives of the children who had been killed in the house and was unjust unjustified homicide. Within the report, the commission condemned the mayor, saying he failed to perform his responsibility as the chief's ex city's chief executive by not actively participating in the preparation, review, and oversight of this plan. Good abdicated his responsibilities as a leader when, after midday, he permitted a clearly failed operation to continue, great risk to life and property. Despite believing MOVE to be an authoritarian, violence-threatening cult, the report declared the 10,000 rounds of ammunition fired into the row house had been excessive and unreasonable, and the failure of those responsible for, fire, for firing to control or stop such an excessive amount of force was unconscionable, especially with children inside the building. Like I said, 10,000 rounds of ammunition is excessive. And the fact that they're saying with children inside, with anyone inside, it's 10,000 rounds of ammunition. The commission's findings were so overwhelmingly negative for Mayor Good, and though this could have caused him to lose popularity, that wasn't the case. In 1988, his reputation was restored, and so was the city's collective goodwill. Good ran for re-election against former mayor and police commissioner Frank Rizzo. It was highly contested, with the difference being only a slim margin of 17,176 votes out of 652. In Rizzo's concession speech, he warned Mayor Good that he would have to deliver or he's going to be right on top of him. Despite all the bad publicity that his actions against MOVE brought him, Good re rehabilitated his image and it helped him beat Rizzo and he became mayor for a second term. Now, I have to explain, Rizzo was highly racist in the when he dealt with um, Move the first time in the first shootout and his decision to have them charge all of them in the Move 9. Um, Rizzo said, kill them all. Like he had a press conference and at the press conference, he straight up said, kill them all. Men, women, children, he didn't care. Do what you got to do to handle them. So really, this wasn't about a rehabilitation of his image. It was about the lesser of two evils. Either it's the black man. You have to understand that Philly is predominantly black at this time. Um, well, not predominantly, but like I would say that it was a it was close. Like it's very close to being a predominantly black city. Like it 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 thins it treads a thin line, and that having a black mayor who 
made bad decisions to deal with something is actually going to fly better than having a blatantly racist mayor. And so that's why he won. He didn't win because he rehabilitated his image. He won because he was the lesser of two evils. That's the really the reality. But unfortunately, this is not the end. It actually happens to get worse how it can. You, but it does. In the April of this year, 2021, the Philadelphia Inquirer revealed that a set of remains thought to be 12-year-old Delicia Africa and another set, 14-year-old Tree Africa, were being held at the University of Pennsylvania and at Princeton University for decades and being studied for their anthropological and archaeological research without the family's knowledge. The children were inside MOVE headquarters where Philadelphia police dropped a bomb on them. Neither the medical examiner's office, the Penn Museum, or Princeton University seemed certain of the whereabouts remains. Hundreds of people rallied in front of the Penn Museum, urging the university to return the remains to of the children who died in the bombing. Protesters demanded answers about how anthropologist Alan Mann at Penn and Princeton had been allowed to hold on to the remains after they had tasked him in the 80s with identifying them. Mayor Kenny says that he learned of the very disturbing incident that happened during the first term of his administration in 2017. Health Commissioner Dr. Thomas Farley, upon learning of the remains found by the medical examiner's office belonging to move bombing victims, he ordered the remains to be cremated and disposed of rather than returned to the family. Now, clearly, he's trying to cover for the medical examiner's office. He's trying to hide the fact that clearly these children were taken for research purposes without their family's express consent rather than being returned to their families. This is something that's been happening to black people forever. We have been used for research purposes. We have been told we were being treated for certain things. And instead, we were in research. We like Henrietta Sachs is a great example. Her blood is been used for decades almost a century now to you know create medicine and she never knew she never knew that they took she knew that they took blood samples she didn't know that her blood was being used in treatments her family was never it wasn't until they sued to try and be compensated for the use of her blood um the tuskegee airmen we could go on and on the tuskegee experiments they did syphilis experiments on on these black men and they did not know. I mean, I could go on and on and on about black people being experimented on without their knowledge or consent. So the fact that these bodies were withheld from the families for so that they can be studied for anthropological and archeological is, I'm sorry, bullshit. This is the 80s that this happened in. And the fact that you are keeping black children for archeological research is bullshit. This isn't a caveman that you found. These are two black children. And I, how it goes into your brain that you're just gonna hold on to them and not give them back to their parents so you can study them is disgusting. It's beyond disgusting. And the fact that you feel that you have the privilege, you have the right to be able to keep anybody's body of any race is insane. So obviously you thinking that you can cremate them and not return the bodies to hide the fact that they were not returned. That's because you want to, you know, salvage your medical examiner's office's reputation. It has nothing to do with anything else. So 
he says that believing the investigation related to the bombing had been completed more than 30 years earlier, not wanting to cause more anguish to the family, I authorized uh, Dr. Sam Guiano to follow the procedure and dispose of the bone and bone fragments. I made this decision on my own without notifying or consulting anyone in the director's office or the mayor's office, and I take full responsibility. That has nothing to do with the family, because clearly if he was caring about the family, he would have given them back so the family could have closure so they could bury their loved ones or dispose of their loved ones in the way that their culture sees fit. And the fact that he's not giving them that closure means he's absolutely not thinking about them at all. I profoundly regret making this decision without consulting family members of the victims, and I extend my deepest apologies for the, fame that this, the pain this is causing them. Farley's reports about the university's mishandling of the bombing victims remains caused him to reconsider this decision in 2017. Farley's resignation, resignation is announced on the exact 36th anniversary of the bombing. Mayor Jim Kenney also announces that medical examiner Dr. Sam Guiano has been placed on leave pending the results of an investigation. The city says that it retained law firm Descartes LLP to conduct a full review to present a complete picture of what has been missing for far too long. Dr. Per Dr. Kenny, per Dr. Pearl Bitgoli, the director of health department's division of chronic disease and injury is going, is being appointed to acting health commissioner on Friday, May 14th, in a statement, uh, Kenny announces that the remains of move bombing victims thought to have been cremated four years ago have been found. Medical examiner staff told the managing director's office that a box labeled move was discovered in a refrigerated section of the medical examiner's office. I'm relieved that these remains were found and they were not destroyed. However, I'm very sorry for the needless pain that this ordeal has caused to the Africa family. They said in a statement, Kenny lays out a brief outline of how his administration plans to move forward in the light of latest developments as an independent investigation into the city's handling of the bombing victims remains is unfolding. The painful anniversary coupled with the mishandling of some of the victims remains renews trauma of 1985 for many. We are getting to the bottom of many different disturbing questions, including why these remains were held for decades and why they were still being held after being directed to be cremated. Well, yeah, you want to know because you got caught. You got caught because they didn't cremate the evidence. That's why you want to know. You want to know why people don't listen to you while you're trying to destroy evidence. That's all you care about. Trying to hide your crimes. So, okay. So... All of the shadiness of Philadelphia. Um, that was awful. That was super horrible. So, um, join me next week, next time, when I tell you the story, which we've talked about before, of my shady mayor, which many of you may be aware of because it made national news when he was indicted. Excuse me. And then also convicted of tax evasion, investment fraud, and extortion by the feds. So I'll tell you the story as only I can because it goes way beyond the indictments, way beyond the convictions. He did a lot of shady, shady things. Let's just say, I'd love to say he has a tenuous relationship with the truth, but he has no relationship with the truth at all. None. So I'll tell you the story of Giselle Correa III, mayor who was convicted of several counts of several different crimes. 
as only I can, because I was there. I lived through it as he stood outside my house and tried to convince people to vote for him in the recall that didn't happen. Or did it? Well, join me next time and you'll find out. And in the meantime, I hope you sleep better knowing the how and why people do such awful things.